It's the 27th of August, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. The podcast, it's a lot like the weather report. You tune in and you're going to find out what it's all about. Are you not? Mark Twain said, climate is what we expect. Weather is what we get. And what we get on this podcast is good news and bad news. But remember, if it wasn't for the rain, there would be no rainbows. So this report is for you, Dr. Sunshine. Did you know that if you take 60 of the top selling name brand drugs in the United States and their cost, which would be big, right? And compare them to what that cost would be in other high-income countries, the cost in the United States is almost 400% higher. That's right, 400% higher. As such, Medicare this year voted new legislation, not Medicare, Congress voted new legislation this year to let Medicare negotiate the prices of drugs. Not all drugs, but most drugs. That's really, really interesting. More important, they're able to cap out-of-pocket expenses for Americans at about $2,000 a year. That's very important. But if you look at the report that we have uh, from the the newspaper The Hill, um, it actually describes some of the restrictions that could be in place about importing drugs. And this would be important for those of you who buy your drugs from Canada, something I wholeheartedly have recommended to my patients. Um, I like NorthwestPharmacy.com. Uh, if you're having a problem affording your drugs in the United States. But that could change with some new legislation. So you want to watch that going forward. Speaking of money, and I'll get to this at the end, anti-rheumatic drugs, the market for that in 2018, how much do you think was spent on anti-rheumatic drugs? That's all the drugs that you use, the biologic, the DMARDs, the targeted synthetics, the, you know, the glucosamine maybe. Um, it's $57 billion dollars. That's gigantic, and it's expected to go as high as $72 billion by 2026, a mere four years from now. This is important. Also important is how you manage your patients with knee or hip arthroplasty. You know, orthopedists are varied in their approach. They tend not to give prophylaxis against DVTs unless the person has a risk factor for DVTs or unless... The patient's going to be immobilized by doing a double procedure. Um, and you're more likely to have DVT and VTE with um, hips rather than knees. Anyway, this is a very large study of 9,000 patients who were tested um, with prophylaxis to either get 100 milligrams a day of aspirin or anoxaparin 40 milligrams a day. Uh, and the question is, which one was going to be better at prophylaxis against VTEs, venous thromboembolism. And that's right, you guessed it, aspirin lost, anoxaparin won. The VTE rate with aspirin was 3.4% and was 1.8% with anoxaparin. That was a very significant, 0.007. The study was actually, was actually supposed to enroll, I think, 15,000 patients and it was prematurely halted during one of its interim analyses because of these results. This is data that you should know, that your surgeon should know, who's operating on your patients. Two big reports this week about VTEs and uh, our patients. One comes from not our patients, but the use of JAK inhibitors uh, in patients who receive JAKs for uh, atopic dermatitis. 
a new indication. Several drugs have been FDA approved. This is a study of over 9,700 patients with atopic dermatitis, and they found no significant association between JAK inhibitor use and VTEs. Hazard ratio 0.95, cross, crosses over one, not significant. The actual numbers here are really low. And again, this is in a non-RA population. RA being a much more inflamed population, inflammation drives VTE risk. Question is, do JAKs add to that? In this very non-inflamed atopic dermatitis population compared to non-inflamed compared to RA, the actual numbers are three VTEs in 5,722 patients. Very low, less than 0.05%. That's important. Another meta-analysis or review of VTEs with JAK inhibitors showed that with tofacitinib, the rates are higher with 10 milligrams BID than 5 milligrams BID. PE rates is 0.5 and 0.3 events per 100 patient years, respectively. The VTE, overall VTE rate was 0.35 per 100 patient years. That means 1,000 patients to get 3.5 VTEs, right? Baricitinib, the rate was 0.5. Uh, for both DVT and PE, 0.5 for 100 patient years. Filgotinib, supposedly safer, not available in the United States, but available outside the United States. Filgotinib, 200 milligrams, the higher dose, had the higher rate of 0.2 VTEs per 100 patient years. Well, Stan Cohen, who commented on some of this data, uh, correctly pointed out that most VTE events do not occur in the double-blind portion of the trials, first six months of the trials. They tend to occur in the open-label long-term extension studies. So therein may lie a message as well. The numbers here being, again, favoring your patients against getting this. And again, the risk for VTE is who? Older people with inflammation who had a prior VTE event. I mean, that's like the three, three biggest factors right there. Prior VTE being the big, biggest of those three. And then maybe JAK inhibitors add on, but maybe only in patients who have a significant risk and significant inflammation. I threw up a tweet about Charcot joints being due to syringomyelia. Raise your hand if you've seen a case of syringomyelia. I don't see any hands. Wait, wait. There's one out there in Bulgaria. Yeah, put it down. We, we, don't, we want to be comforted by the fact we're not missing syringomyelia amongst our patients. As you know, causes of Charcot joints, uh, neuropathic joints, you know, lower extremities, mainly ankle and feet for diabetes, right? But for the upper extremities, it's always been said that syringomyelia for shoulder and elbow. This particular review reminds us that um, most of these patients present with sensory and motor deficits, sometimes with ulnar nerve neuropathies. Again, they have deformed joints, exaggerated osteoarthritic changes with not a whole lot of pain. Um, the median age of these patients was 45 years. Most cases involve the elbow, two-thirds involve the elbow in decreasing frequency, other joints like the shoulder, wrist, and sometimes the MCPs or IP joints. Two-thirds of patients had a Chiari, mal a Chiari malformation. That's a, um, you have to do a, a CT or MR of the base of the skull to find that. So interesting, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, uh, if you haven't, you might have to go to Bulgaria. Uh, another really strange report um, in cellular reports about tamoxifen being a potential therapy for osteoarthritis. And this is based on animal models, murine models of osteoarthritis, where they looked at uh, nociceptive neurons being stimulated by voltage-gated sodium channels. That's one of the mechanisms by which you get signaling 
uh, nociceptive signaling, and that can lead to obviously pain in osteoarthritic animal models, right? They showed in these animal models that the use of tamoxifen was able to, number one, inhibit these um, sodium-gated, uh, voltage-gated channels um, and relieve pain to the same degree that they would see with either CBD or lidocaine. Lidocaine I get, CBD I kind of get, but I like the idea of new thinking on how we can better manage pain. But if you look up tamoxifen and osteoarthritis, you won't find anything other than you know, um, animal models. There's really no human experience with this. So maybe this will be fuel for future trials. That would be interesting. There's a lot of animal data. When you start manipulating estrogen and estrogen receptors and whatnot, you can ameliorate um, models of osteoarthritis. And then I'm reminded, so if, if tamoxifen interferes with estrogen um, binding, then what about the aromatase inhibitors? Both tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors are indicated in uh, estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. The um, aromatase inhibitors, if you're postmenopausal, um, but whereas tamoxifen might help, we don't know, no studies yet done, we do know that aromatase inhibitors actually do cause arthralgias, bone pain, arthritis, and when the mechanism of that is really not well known. We do know that, however, that the mechanism by which these two drugs affect estrogen is quite different, and that may lead to different effects. Amelioration of arthritis in one, worsening and causing arthritis in another. Again, there's a lot of cloud here, and I've really mucked it up in this bad weather report of an episode, but that's why I'm going with the weather um, as the title to this report. Um, a big cloud always hangs over systemic sclerosis. And a match control survival study looked at um, 1,139 systemic sclerosis patients um, and twice that number of controls. Um, and with a follow-up of almost five to six years, they had a higher death rate, more deaths in those with systemic sclerosis, and that's not surprising. Um, the five-year survival was uh, in systemic sclerosis was nearly 80%, and in controls was 93%. Not too bad, but it's five-year survival. It tends to look worse if you look at 10-year survival, where the numbers are like 68% for systemic sclerosis and 85% in controls. The hazard ratio on one-year mortality with systemic sclerosis is 3.7-fold higher if you have that disease. Obviously, this cloud means that we need some sunshine, new research, but we've been talking about new research last week's report about rituximab, you know, some promising data coming up with JAK inhibitors in, in uh, systemic sclerosis. That's kind of good news. Another uh, report I want to emphasize in this podcast is the report that we put up about a bi-directional association between RA and depression. You know, if you have RA, you have a 47% higher risk of incident depression. If you have depression, you have a 34% higher risk of having RA. If you have RA and depression, your um, mortality risk goes up almost 80%. Again, depression is ever-present in society, in our patients, but yet, if you're like me, you don't ask about depression actively in all your patients at all visits. 
I think it's time that we include that one question on our survey or do a short questionnaire to look at someone's depression. It's really important. It will affect outcomes. I don't know if you remember the data from ULAR, we talked about those with depression had significantly higher mortality rates. Uh, pregnancy and RA, 73 patients with live births. What did they show in this particular study? They showed that if you stopped the biologic when the patient was uh, pregnancy test came back positive, you had a higher rate of poor disease control, higher flare rates during the first and second trimester, 55% in those who stopped with a positive pregnancy test versus those who did not, 55 versus 33%, and that was significant. So threefold higher risk, actually. So I think that if someone's on a biologic and they're doing well, you could stop. I tend to go on a little bit longer and show that they're doing well in the first trimester before I stop the drug. Again, with most biologics, the data is encouraging. There's no downside um, as far as, you know, fetal harm, malformations, um, um, you know, worse outcomes. The worst you're going to see are, you know, uh, premature births, um, not much in the way of spontaneous abortions. That's about the same across the board. So, again, continuing therapy might be the smarter move here. A Chinese study looked at the use of leflunamide in patients with lupus nephritis. 205 patients, 215 patients with biopsy-proven lupus nephritis. They were all treated with uh, IV cyclophosphamide and high-dose steroids. And then they went into their maintenance regimen where they were either given uh, standard-dose azathioprine or leflunamide. The renal outcomes were the same over time with regard to uh, renal flares, 16 versus 18%. Time to flare, 14 versus 16 months. Um, other adverse events in proteinuria. I don't need to indicate which was which because they were essentially overlapping. I know many of you use azathioprine. I think few of you have ever used leflunamide. But yet you are very skilled in using leflunamide in RA, and you probably know better how to manage leflunamide than you do azathioprine. We tend to seriously underdose azathioprine in our treatment of lupus, and that's my opinion. So the JAMA this week had a report on a hyaluronic acid injections of the knee. Actually, not JAMA. This is the British Medical Journal. And they did a meta-analysis, yet another meta-analysis on this issue, and yet they come up with still the same data, which says don't use hyaluronic acid injections in knee OA. It's not any better than placebo. And there's a bazillion patients and hundreds of studies to prove the point. And there's now probably 10 different meta-analyses or other comparative studies showing it doesn't work. All societies say it doesn't work and shouldn't be used except for nice. I'm not sure why they still recommend it other than to be nice. Um, 169 trials, 21,000 patients randomized in knee OA outcomes. And looking at efficacy, it is a little bit better. If you can look at the video, you can see I'm showing almost nothing as far as my two fingers pinching together to show the margin of benefit. Actual numeric benefit on a 100 millimeter visual analog scale for pain, it's a benefit of two units or two millimeters. That's nothing, folks. That's not significant, equal to placebo. But what most people don't realize and don't hang their hats on here is the safety issues. 
15 of these trials actually looked at serious adverse events and showed a 49% higher risk, and that was significant, of a serious adverse event if you received hyaluronic acid injections compared to placebo. Moreover, a 2018 Medicare study showed that Medicare spent $325 million on viscosupplementation, and it turns out that 28% of those expenditures were spent on treating large joint infections following viscosupplementation. Why you would continue to do this other than for it's part of your model and you believe in it and it helped your grandmother, I don't know, but the data is strongly against it. Sorry, folks, don't use it. I don't know if you were surprised as I was this week about the report on increasing, skyrocketing, surge-like um, increases in the use of marijuana and hallucinogens in young adults. This is an annual NIH study that's been going on for since the late 80s, I believe, um, and they found that cannabis use has grown significantly. So cannabis use defined as more than 20 times in the previous year, the number in the 19 to 30 year old group has gone up to 43%. A year ago, it was only 32%, 34%. 10 years ago, it was 29%. From 29 to 43%. These are record numbers, folks. Moreover, actually, the, the use of cannabis has gone up in the older age population, those over age 50. Ma daily marijuana consumption doubled from 6% to 11% from 2011 to 2021. So this is concerning. Psychedelic use, um, you know, uh, psilocybin and other things also has uh, also gone up significantly in this younger age group. This is really worrisome, if not surprising. So all told, I think there's a lot to be concerned about. There's a lot to be encouraged about. From this report, the weather report, I would say that I'm concerned about the overuse of hyaluronic acid are not paying attention to depression, which I think is the 800-pound gorilla in our um, exam rooms. And again, this growing use of, of psychedelics and marijuana in our youth. This is concerning. By the way, that marijuana and psychedelics is happening in a year when smoking went down and narcotic use went down. Is that not a head-scratcher? Well, what am I encouraged about? Is there a new... Um, high front coming in that we should think is being great. I think the, the low VTE risk data is, is really encouraging, especially in the wake of all the 1133 tofacitinib oral surveillance study negative data, um, which was really generated in over age 65, prior MI, history of smoking. This data also says VTE risk is relatively uncommon and you just have to worry about that who are in high risk. I'm really concerned, uh, encouraged about new thoughts on OA management using mo animal models and maybe extending that to humans, talking about tamoxifen here. Um, I like the VTE prophylaxis data with anoxaparin. Um, but I want to end with the great encouragement on the power of the rheumatologist. Where do I get that from? Well, you are all knowing. You are all wonderful. You manage these horribly complex voodoo diseases like nobody else and with great ease and confidence. But your power is exemplified in the, um, the market and the value of the market. As I said, $57 billion in 2018, growing to $72 billion in 20, 
26. That's almost a three point three uh, percent change uh, annually. Um, you control a fifty to seventy billion dollar market, and there's only about three four thousand of you out there who write prescriptions for these drugs. That makes you very powerful. If you ever thought rheumatology is not so powerful, you're very powerful. And you should throw this around because if it wasn't for you, they wouldn't manage these horrible diseases. And, they, and, and who's going to control and appropriately use these new and expensive drugs in the future? Power to the rheumatologist. I want to point you to Ask Kush Anything. If you've got a case or a question, we can discuss on the podcast. And I want to also ask you, if you're a fan of the podcast, on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's iTunes or um, Google Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever, give us a thumbs up and say something good about, uh, about the podcast so I can show it to my grandmother. She's wondering what I'm doing on Wednesdays and Thursdays when I'm recording this. Take good care of yourself. We'll talk next week.